0: Well, hello everyone and welcome back to CrossWires. It's James here. And this week we've got a slightly different sort of style episode. Um, Less interviewing, more sort of discussion chatty, which is kind of where we want to be going with the show. And we want to keep doing interviews, keep talking to people. But um, my guest today is someone I know from the RMC Retro Discord server, which at the moment, to be fair, is where I'm getting most of my guests. Thanks, Neil. Thanks. (laughs) Um,
1: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jack, a.k.a. It's an Arse. Hello. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks for having me on. Uh, We we, uh, come up with a few different topics to discuss, uh, mainly around why is tech so hard these days compared to uh, how it seemed to to feel that it it was, uh, mainly with different security concerns. And, yeah, I guess... uh, it's 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 something that i have to uh deal with more or less every day um in in my uh job which is supporting a, a bunch of users at a business so yeah i i get quite um riled up in it all
0: so yeah it's i mean one thing we we were discussing earlier because obviously we've been chatting pre-show and uh, and everything and myself and jack are both from the north of england and i mean i was born in the same glorious county as jack but i moved out I'm a traitor. i moved when I was very young, across the border into Yorkshire. But some of you might notice my northern accents become a little bit stronger in this episode, mostly because of my proximity to Jack, even though it's a, a, you know, a VoIP call, but also because I've just been up to see my, my, my family. Like, you know... Um, um Ayo, cock. Ayo, you're all right. <laughs> Um And we were discussing, I said to Jack, oh, I'm, I'm just having some dinner, old boy. I mean, I'll, I'll be free to chat before the show. Don't you mean tea, lad? No, Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was an awful impression. But it is one of the things I really appreciate about technology is how it allows us to communicate over a distances. Because, you know, when I was growing up and we moved from Preston to Leeds, um, I don't mind saying where I was born. I was born in Preston and we moved to Leeds. And the only way we could communicate in any sort of real time with family members was on the phone. We didn't have any of this signal or this uh, Skype or anything like that. Yeah. Scarp? What's Scarp? <laughs> um, uh, you know, and um, I, I just remember phone calls. They weren't the same quality as they were today. You know, for all we joke about the old phone system, even in the last 20-odd years of the phone system, analog phone has improved. The voice quality has become uh, somewhat better. And as we've got mobile phones, we have become better. But I think we have lost the simplicity of just picking up the phone dialing a number and speaking to people so that's kind of one of the reasons we wanted to to talk about this complication so before we dive into that Jack so tell people a little bit about yourself like you mentioned you worked in IT but what's your passion um we of course have the
1: obligatory plugs if there's anything you want to promote make sure you do it now or forever hold your peace <laughs> so all, all my life I've been interested in technology and computers and um it, uh, you know i've always grew up i grew up with older machines uh like the master system we had a ps1 sort of when the ps2 was out that we bought new and one of the first machines i actually used and this is interesting i've got i still got the hard drive from um was an amiga 1200 which uh, there was a picture on it that's just called jack uh in deluxe paint and um so the the twelve hundred had an accelerator in with a real time clock battery on it and so the the date stamped in april nineteen ninety eight so wow. it would have been two <laughs> and it's wow. just it's just a crap drawing, but yeah, I showed my parents it and he, and she and my mum went uh oh yeah you drew- you drew that in the old house I was like wow. wow and then so the that that's i don't remember doing that, but one of my earliest memories is in primary school, um, it probably would have been about two thousand and one. Um, we still had Acorn Archimedes, like I think it was an A three thousand. I can see it. I can see it being wheeled into the classroom on uh, like it was like a red metal frame desk thing. And oh, it with looked- white
0: shelves, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly, yeah. So, um, and it's a picture of a lion, and so. The picture is in the book from primary school of all the things I did, and I think it was I think it was either year one or year two. It says "Lion" by Jack A three thousand. Looking back on it, it's it's interesting. We still had that machine back then. So from that to. Uh, uh, Messing with one of one of the first PCs we had was a Pentium 2 machine that was an ex-university machine, because my mum worked for a university. So That was a, an RM, Pentium 2, so it would have been an RM accelerator. And um, memories of going to Computer Furs, we bought a copy of Carmageddon. Oh, um, what a game! Yeah, brilliant game. Growing up with that and... I just remember every time we we'd we'd go to the, the you know the the dump and uh fish through the electronics and I'd take things home and you know I had boxes and motherboards and processors and stuff that I would mess around with and so I took I took it on board as wanting to do it as a career. Uh that's what I did in college. I did an IT course in college and I'm I'm very fortunate I seem to drop into really good um opportunities and um, I got work experience at a place, they offered me an apprenticeship, I then became first-line support, then I moved on to second-line, third-line, and now I'm a IT systems administrator for a multi-million pound wholesaler, so it, it definitely paid off, but it's the passion that drives me.
0: Awesome, just just hearing some of those stories, and I think mean, you were saying the computer fair. One of them was in Landundo In way, is it way? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a,
1: a radio show that because me uh, my granddad was into all the old mm-hmm. radio gear and stuff, so we would go there and then they'd have the the like the buy and sell hall, and um, mm-hmm. I remember there was a guy who was who was you know, boxes and boxes of laptops that were faulty or whatever. And it was like three for 15 pound or something. And so, and so I'd, I'd buy laptops we would get like remote control boats and just all sorts of stuff. It's it's really interesting.
0: Cause obviously, you know, you're, you're a little bit younger than
1: I am and just, but
0: you know, Acorn Archimedes. So we had Archimedes in the first few years of high school mm. and they were great machines uh, we had BBC Masters at primary school. I have vivid memories. Not so we didn't have the micros. We had the Masters, which was sort of the follow one. And I just remember so many little things. But you know, they had monochrome green screens. No, no colour monitors. I think hmm. we did get an Acorn Archimedes in one of the classrooms. I think our Year Six classroom had an Archimedes, and I just remember it not working properly with one piece of software. It was some like Roman village exploration software that just did not work. You know, going back to, you know, remembering those machines where all you had to do, certainly in the case of like my my 600, is pop the disc in and the game loaded. These days, I mean, okay, we've, we've written down a few notes, so I guess this leads into our first topic about sort of keeping systems updated. So these days, when you when you get a game, particularly physical games, the first thing you have to do is download. Now, downloading the games themselves. So I, on this iMac, I uh, have a Windows partition. I have a bootcamp partition for gaming. Because this thing's got a reasonably decent graphics card. Enough to play, you know, older some older titles. But just downloading. Uh, what was that downloaded the other day? Oh, uh, Wolfenstein uh, The New Order. Which is the, was the first new Wolfenstein game we brought out. Just for download size of that was huge. And then, you know, the updates. But um, I got um, um on the recent Switch sale, Doom Eternal was on sale. And then I got Crisis Remastered as well. And I'm like, I want to play these. And then I'm like, oh, not only do I have to clear space on the Switch, I have to wait for the downloads to finish. And, you know, reasonably fast internet, but still. But I think we were talking about particularly Windows updates, weren't we? So my experience has always been... You know, Windows updates have always been a pain. I, I, and I remember Windows 98 sort of bringing in the whole co- concept of Windows Update, the Windows Update service, where you you, know, you could go in and go to its website and do that. But it seemed to, it just seems to me that it's gotten more complicated and there's more and more... Up, I'm sounding very grumpy at this point about these, but more <laughs> and more updates just to do... And, and I remember, you know, I've done... You know, I've worked in tech support. I've worked in IT support for companies, and one of the biggest gripes I had from our users—now these were, you know, very impatient people most of the time, was "I'm fed up of waiting. I'm fed up of all these updates. Can we not just pause them?" Well, no, because they're kind of important updates. But it does seem that there's more and more, and at least my experience is Windows 10 is kind of like dealing with flies. You think you've got them all, and then one
1: more comes back. Yeah, what's your perception? So I mean as of recent, Windows ten's pretty good now. Compared to so Windows ten really came out in twenty fifteen mm. and it just wasn't ready. It there was no way it was ready. Um it was even worse than I think Windows eleven is now. You know, or upon its release it was a it was so unpolished. Um but Windows Seven, especially, we would um, you know reinstall PCs. You know, we were we were still doing SSD upgrades and office PCs with Windows Seven. Mm. Um, you know, just 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 an upgrade for an existing system. It hadn't reached the end of its life, but it was worth sticking uh, two gig more memory in it yep. and a solid state drive because they were costing you know fifty sixty pound a pop for a one twenty gig at the time. And you'd you'd do a fresh install of Windows 7 because, well, I don't really want to put an old install of Windows, you know, I don't want to really clone the hard drive over. No. Although we did in some cases, if it was just, you know, uh, a small business that might have 40 staff, um, but they have a server with folder redirection and all that, we'd just uh, clean install install their line of business applications, domain join it, blah, blah, blah. We'd then get phone calls from the business to say, because Fiber wasn't so widely available at the time, or they'd have a leased line, but it might have been 20 meg or mm-hmm. 40 meg, and it, we'd have just got them onto VoIP, or they might have had VoIP, and uh, they'd ring up, and the caller would be somewhat choppy, and they'd say, oh, t- such a thing's not loading, this web page is not loading, or I'm trying to upload this dictation to to Dropbox, and it's just taking forever. And you'd, it it would be because that machine you've just reinstalled and put on the site is now downloading all the Windows updates. Uh, so, yeah, Windows 7. Uh, so we'd we go and <laughs> disable the Windows update service <clears throat> and come back to it at, at, at a later point, Uh but yeah, you'd, you'd restart it and it'd go installing updates one of 192. Yeah. And it would always be
0: when you restarted the machine because you had that really important presentation that you you wanted to restart your machine so everything was fresh and you had a presentation in half an hour. Windows like, nope.
1: Again, you'd, you'd speak to whatever and you'd say, look, just leave it because I don't want you turning it off and the implications of... Whatever happens when we boot it back up again, and it either doesn't work, just go and use a different machine. It was, it was, it was pretty, pretty tough, tough on internet connections, tough on the machines, and then very inconvenient for the person actually using it. Um, even even if it was, and and the the update service wasn't as reliable. No, it would get stuck, and it wouldn't do updates, or it would. This, the service would get stuck and restart and start downloading updates. So there might be 10 or 15 or 20 uh, outstanding that it would just all of a sudden start downloading and cause issues for the user or whatever, especially for people on machines with hard drives still. it just sit there thrashing away. When Windows 10 come along in 2015 and we, we held off for a bit, all of a sudden these Windows 7 machines are going and downloading Windows 10 and sitting there waiting to to install it. And then the Windows 10 upgrade, upgrade assistant would install itself as a program over the course of a you know, months after release or a year after release. And then it was in the news and stuff. Oh, Windows seven is force updating to Windows 10. And, Windows ten in my opinion, you know, it came out in twenty fifteen, I think the first version was version fifteen oh seven. Windows ten wasn't really that good of an OS, in my opinion. It wasn't as solid as eight point one oh seven until eighteen oh nine or like nine and nineteen 19- 1809 and 1909 were, like, mm-hmm. notable versions for me. I think one of them they called the Creator's Update. That's right. And it yeah. had, like, the newer snipping Tool, snip and Sketch, and a few different options like that. And that's when it... So how many years is that? That's three or four years between it actually releasing, and then, in my opinion, when it was very usable and stable. But the Windows Update aspect of it definitely now, I think, is... From, from a Windows 10 Pro, I can't speak for home at all, which does make a difference. mm mm-hmm. yep. From a Pro Edition standpoint, I'm quite happy with the way that it operates. The one thing I don't like is cumulative update preview. Yeah, that makes no sense. Why are you downloading and installing a preview of an update when I'm not in a beta channel or anything like that? You know... A, I'm just a regular user that mm-hmm. has a pro edition. Why are you wasting my time so installing a preview of a cumulative update?
0: <laughs> that makes no sense. Look, and you know, IT policies in different. I've come across this. I mean, let's not get into a whole thing about um, the NHS and not updating Windows. <laughs> but for legitimate reasons, some IT departments will have policies where, hang on, we need to. Um, stagger our Windows updates. We need to test run, test flight these first. Particularly, you know, when your systems are mission critical. So no, I, I don't get that. Uh, what I will say is, I've seen it far too many times where businesses are reluctant to update, not because they have a a compliance need to, but because they're scared of, you know, the effects a Windows update could have. I think that's why you should do staggered updates um, and do testing with a... I guess it all depends on the size of your business as well because if you're only maybe you're like a 10-person business, can you really do staggered updates? Can you have maybe, you know, Janice in the corner over there, uh, the receptionist, running the Windows 10 latest update while the others don't? Is that going to be a good control group or do you need a reasonably sized sort of IT team to test it.
1: I mean, nowadays we've got uh, RMM tools, remote management and monitoring tools yep. that IT departments and our MSPs, you know, outsourced mm-hmm. IT support companies utilise to control Windows updates, which is something I do, and I can tell it which KB number update to exclude, you know, I keep an eye on the news. I also have it set so that it scans for updates on a certain day and installs them on a certain other day. Uh, There's policies for servers that are staggered. That makes sense. Um, Especially in a remote desktop session host environment, you don't want to be installing all of the... In my opinion, you don't want to be installing all of the new updates to all of the hosts. At the same time, you might want to put it on one host or a couple of hosts to test it with first, because then at least if users are trying to connect to the... uh, the session hosts. If the if,
0: if one's got a problem, at least you've got the others. If at one's home.
1: got a problem, you can take it out of the pool, and uh, it minimises business disruption. But and do you know what? I'd forgotten about RMM, RMM
0: tools, and I shouldn't have done because I've used. Well, I I've got a personal favourite only because, very honest, I listen to Linus. I'm <sighs> I'm a big Pulseway fan. Um, I have used it in in production. I really liked it. Um. But I know it's certainly not one that is as widely deployed. But I know there's
1: lots of tools out there. There's a lot of tools out there. So depending on how big your company is, what it is you're trying to achieve, there are a lot of different options. And so the options that we used in my last place, which was an MSP, didn't suit um, what I felt this company needed. It, It was just overly complex. There was no need to have that much one might argue that having an RMM tool for uh, the business of the size that it is is a bit of a waste, but the cost is very minimal. Antivirus is included and managed. Yeah. It manages all of my Windows updates. It provides alerting systems, remote control. Um, It's very valuable, and even it, it provides ticketing, and it's not as advanced as Pulseway, which I did demo and told them it was Too complicated for what I wanted. They still Mm. tried to sell it to me. Uh, Pulseway, AutoTask, Connectwise—all of those are more advanced. Although Pulseway is a lot newer to the game than Connectwise and AutoTask is. But that loops back round to this
0: whole simplicity thing. You know, RMM tools have made you're an IT systems admin. From what, you know, I've spoken to other IT system admins in different, you know, with lots of different lines, and these sort of tools have made their jobs a lot easier rather than having to run around, uh, you know, and physically, you know, pull out that, you know, that keyboard tray from the um, from the server rack and do all stuff around it. The amount of stuff you can do remotely now is incredible. And I think that's a real win for making something still very complicated, a complicated process in terms of, the the necessary complexity and making it user-friendly
1: or making it It definitely makes it definitely makes the job easier Mm. the technology helps the situation yes and that is that's
0: kind of where i want technology to be i want technology to be helpful not a hindrance and i know people get frustrated i think more so home users on windows updates and you know, I, I work I support older people with computers, including my parents. Um <laughs> I shouldn't say that. To be fair, my parents are much easier now because they're on honestly, my parents don't actually have a computer in my house anymore. They have two iPads and their phones. Uh, I've got the last of their computers here. That's been sold. Um and just doing iOS updates, I will say Apple do make iOS updates super easy and smooth. And you know, in a business environment, you've got tools like Jamf um, for managing Macs and managing iOS devices. They do have a free plan, which I really need to play with to learn a little bit more about it. But you know, the fact that those devices just work, and and you know, my, my biggest frustration of non Windows hardware is I was talking about earlier getting the you know the Switch uh, games. Why is it every time we get a new Switch game, we're like, oh, I'm so excited to play this. There's a new Switch software update. And it's like, you should really update this because if you don't, none of your online features will work until you update. Like, yeah. I think neither of us are saying, and I I hope this is okay, neither one of us is saying skip updates and skip security updates because they're important. They, you know, the reason, we go back to the NHS, one of the reasons the NHS got compromised by the WannaCry uh, ransomware is because they hadn't updated their systems. They were running... Unpatched systems with known vulnerabilities. Not to get too preachy on this, but the minute that an update comes out that says it fixes this vulnerability, this CVE, that means that that vulnerability, if it wasn't already, is now known and in the wild, which means it becomes a potential target for attackers. So the minute that vulnerability is out there and known... You need to start, in my opinion, and Jack, please do correct me if you think I'm I'm maybe being a bit harsh, but you kind of need to start your patch process at that point if a minute of vulnerabilities in the wild.
1: Yeah, personally, on a personal level, you're not so much at risk no. as those in business, especially if the business deals with a lot of other businesses, especially if that business deals with a lot of other businesses globally and not just in your country. Because the communication between those companies, that's how things spread. Mm. Uh, The communication between the two, it could be an email attachment, it could be a link or something like that. And we do have technologies to prevent us against that. Um, We can train users for it, but we have a responsibility as IT people to do what we can to um, mitigate any such issues and when the the Log4j vulnerability, which I think came about uh, late last year, yeah,
0: yeah, that's right, yeah,
1: I started contacting all of the providers of software that we use, you know, bespoke mm-hmm. business software, and so our ERP package that we use I contacted the support company for and asked them to. Right, is there anything in this that we need to be worried about? Yeah. And can you tell me what I need to do? And they came back with yes, there is an element to it that um, is vulnerable, but only if you have X, you know, a plugin or um, package installed that is a part of it. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't have that, and everything else was checked, and it was fine. But you have to be very much on top of it. When there's so much at risk,
0: that's a really good point, and you do make a valid point. that for home users, there's certainly le- less of a risk. But I mean, I I do recommend people make sure you are updating your systems. And you know, there comes a point. I think my so look my general. And this is probably a discussion for a whole different episode. But my general mindset on technology is you should be able to use technology up until the point that it stops getting security updates. More so in a business, but maybe at home. Let, let me put it this way we know that a lot of these vulnerabilities are in browsers, and you use your browsers browsers for a lot of things, particularly online banking. Online banking has its own set of problems. We're actually going to be talking about sort of like authentication for banking in, in this episode, but and, and passwords. But the last thing you want is to be signing into your online banking with a browser that potentially got a bug that's going to expose all your login credentials or expose your session session to an attacker. Again, it might not happen, but it's why, you know, I, I really believe in tech should last for as long as it should, which is, again, it's kind of why I'm a big fan of iOS, because for all the, you know, for all the jibing that people make about Apple obsoleting their products, most of the Android phones out there have no guarantee or no leg- longevity at all of security updates. Apple, for all the things that Apple do wrong, the one thing they do right is supporting older hardware for quite a decent amount of time.
1: I think the um, the iPhone 7 still gets updates, certainly the iPhone 8. Um, 7 does, and so does 8. My dad's on an 8.
0: Um, and we're on 13 now, so... Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think, I might be wrong, but I think the, 6, the 6s is actually still supported as far as i'm aware i know the 6 isn't the 6 isn't no which is why Um. which is how we how we ended up with so again going back to this whole tech being less more you know so useful i'll be very honest when i got my 13 pro the first thing i did did, said to my parents right i've now got a 10s that's available who which one of you'd like that phone Mum said "Oh, i'll take that one so did a deal with mum and I always give them huge discounts because, you know, we sort of agreed, look, I'm not going to give you this for free, but I'm also not going to charge you the earth for it. So she got my 10S and Dad got her 8. And it just, they're both now supported on supportive phones because Mum was on a 6 before she got her 8. My Dad was on a 5S. And I just said to him, look, I just, it was about banking scenario that I used. Here's my other take on updates. And I don't know if this is something you've come across, but... There are devices in our homes that probably should get more updates, and we do. Because I can't remember the last time my, my Vodafone router... And, and yes, at the moment, I am using the stock ISP router. I'm not using its Wi-Fi. I'm using um, Orbi, uh, Netgear Orbi Wi-Fi, which I don't recommend. We're going to be doing an episode on, on Wi-Fi at some point. For simplicity's sake, I'm using Vodafone's router, but very rarely do I get a firmware update. And the amount of vulnerabilities that must be in You know, I think, didn't we have a big flaw in wpa We had a WPA2 flaw a couple of years ago. Um, There could be flaws in just little things like the the web interface for that router. But they don't get updates. Um, I just got a notification from my... (laughs) You're going to think I'm such a tech snob at this point. I got a notification, old boy, from my Nespresso machine saying it needed a firmware update. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I have a Wi Fi connection. Wait, what
1: what is the point now? Uh, You know, I just wake up in the morning and I press the button and the machine comes on and then it makes me coffee. That's it. That's all it needs to do. It doesn't need to be connected to the internet. Do you know why it's connected to the internet? It's connected to the
0: internet so that it can get the updated list of barcodes for their proprietary pods. Ah, yes. Only reason it's connected. I can check its status. As you said, it's not like I can sit in bed and say, oh, make me a coffee, because guess what? I still have to be in front of a machine to put the cup
1: under and to put the pod in. It can't do that for me. There's there's certain aspects of smart home tech that sort of makes sense, and being a technology enthusiast like myself, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have dabbled in... Uh... <laughs> well, let's talk smart home tech, because it's one of our subjects, so let's...
0: Well, I think you know. You obviously, uh, Jack, seen my my setup. You can see, obviously, I've got Hugh lights, and I think I've talked about it in the RMC Discord, and we've certainly talked about it prepping for the show. I love smart home tech, but you know what? I find it at least when I've been trying to choose tech for my parents, it's been complicated, and with the exception of pr- I. I personally try and go for stuff that is HomeKit enabled. So, uh, so it's Apple's HomeKit because that, in my experience, tends to work better. What I try and avoid is Google Cloud, uh, So, Google, oh, no, Google Home, Amazon Alexa. Even worse ones, like, oh, yeah, use our cloud. There's been a few cases where cloud services for these smart home stuff is actually shut down. And because that's the only way you could control those devices... Effectively, you've got a paperweight, unless it's got another
1: mechanism. Then there was something to do with the Logitech Harmony, one of the hubs. That's it. it Harmony Hub or something like that. That's the one. That's it. But you've got a bit of an... Because
0: you've got smart home tech, I assume. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I think you sort of hit the nail. It it can go a little bit too far. There are some smart home products. I'm like, no. Some are... Why would you ever want that? Some are, oh, that's cool, but... It's really a nice to have, like a smart home shower. Okay, I can see the benefit of that. You can say, you know, be able to have your shower warm up rather than having to go in and freeze certain body parts off. Um, (laughs) It can be preset. But, you know, like smart kettles and smart coffee machines, you still have to be there to pour the tea. You know, and being true Northerners, we like our tea, you know? You know?
1: <laughs> if if we stick to uh, home appliances, especially kitchen appliances, so, okay, kettle, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, the cup needs to be there. Yeah. It's like the old teas made. My grandma Tyler. had one. My grandma but had they one. They make sense because they can, you prepare it the night before. Yeah. You've got your coffee in there, you've got um, you know, your tea bag in your cup, your cup's under it, and it's set for a time, and that's when you get up. You know, yeah. you know you've know, you got to prepare it. It's one of those things, unless you've got a, a vending machine, coffee machine, it's not going to provide everything. It's not going to provide the cup, nope. the sugar, the milk, et cetera. But washing machines, right? Yeah. Smart washing machines, I'm not really sure about. No. I can't. So, uh, you know, I've considered it, but I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, "Mm, yeah, no idea. Ovens, yes. Oven, yes. Because I might be in Tesco and I might have this pizza that's three pound reduced or whatever. and I'm like, right, I'm going to have pizza tonight. And I could just go on my phone and set the oven and turn it on and set it to a temperature. When I come home from doing my shopping, it's ready to go. And I don't have to wait for the oven to heat up. So, there's that. There's a safety aspect to it. Obviously, right, well, your oven's on. But your oven's on when it's cooking food. But what if it blows up and everything? Well, you don't need smart features to prevent it from blowing up. There's all sorts of safety mechanisms built into these appliances anyway. All the smart feature is doing is um, allowing you to turn it on remotely. So, the... Issue really there for me is the connection between your oven <laughs> and your phone, wherever you may be.
0: Yes, I mean that's a really good point. Look, you know, I I have not. I'm not going to lie. I have in the past put my slow cooker onto. I've got one of the earlier. It's not one of the new Fred ones. It's one of the Bluetooth ones. Um, I've got an Eve Energy in the kitchen. I actually use it now for a fly catcher uh, for you know one of these electronic fly things, and I have that set to come on at certain times of the day. Um, but I used to have, and I can still use it for this, I had it so that if I was at work and I put something in the slow cooker sort of ready to go, I could just, from work, turn on my slow cooker at the right time. So I can see the value in that, but a smart washing machine, the only value I could really see in that, if I'm being honest, is knowing that your washing's done. But I know how long the cycle's going to take. A lot of more decent washing machines will tell you how long the cycle's going to take. I can just then tell my smart assistant to set me a reminder to take the washing out in X time. So I don't need that. I don't need to know. Oh, it's now removing that custard stain from from my shirt. You know, I mean,
1: <laughs> here's a look at it. Here's a look at it. It spins round.
0: <laughs> oh, a webcam inside. Oh, I like that. You can just see how. No, <laughs> oh, maybe not. I do like. I think it's Samsung who've got the wonderful little thing of the little door. It's not a smart feature, but it's a cool feature where you can add extra smaller items. Because how many times have I for, like done my put my laundry in, close the door, set it going, and then just behind me, it's but one sock. That did. It's always a sock. It's always yeah. a sock. And that's why I've got loads of odd socks, because, like, we get washed at different times. <laughs> Things like that, I don't see. A smart fridge. Now, a smart... They seem to have sort of gone out of fashion, but, but I liked the idea of being able to be notified about when your milk's going off. All, all you have to really do for it is just unscrew the milk and... oh, that's gone. That's definitely gone. But that could be handy. But you hit the nail on the head. The connection between your washing machine and your phone.
1: Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, if it's not connected to the internet, it can thrive all it wants within my LAN. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I do for it to not thrive within my LAN is I'm trying to stick to Zigbee for all of the devices. I don't have many, but I have actual smart things like, um, well, first of all, in in my living room I have a projector. Nice. And the projector is in, mounted to the ceiling uh, in... The line of where the the big light is on the ceiling, <laughs> the main light for the living room. And, and big, so, sorry,
0: I just love that you use that t- wonderful <laughs> big th- light. Put big light on.
1: <laughs> sorry, big light. sorry, we... I don't have big telly. <laughs> I don't have big light. I took the big light down because it was in the way of the, the projector. projector. We should <laughs> we should
0: probably explain for our non Northern listeners. But big light is typically what you refer to as the main light. <laughs> jack's just literally disappeared from camera <laughs> because he's laughing but it's it's true um it's an old peter k joke uh you know what he says so i'll put big light on what one with a thousand watt bulb
1: <laughs> yeah of course these days it's all led so you've taken down big light because it so i've taken down big light because the, it's in the way of the projector right. casting its image but i prefer having uplighters mm-hmm. anyway yeah so it's like the ikea not lamps um so those i've got two in my living room and they've got osram zigbee bulbs in them Mm. and so i've got a zigbee door thing so it tells you if the doors open or closed door sensor yeah so i've got one of them on the front door one of them on the back door and so i set up an automation that if i come home and open the front door but if if it's not sunset Don't do it. No, it's got to be sunset. Right. So if I open the front door and it's dark outside, the living room light comes on straight away. Nice. Which allows me to see and go for the alarm, turn the alarm off, (laughs) and an additional step in there which I still haven't done is IKEA have got quite a nice range of smart appliances and they are sort of Philips Hue ish, I believe Philips had some part in that technology, but. A lot of that is Zigbee stuff. It's- a lot of Philips Hue stuff is Zigbee. Um, they have an electric blind, so I have a blind on the front window. So the idea being that if it's dark, put the blind down, Yeah. right? But then if I come in, the blind's already down, the lights come on because it's dark, and then I can see. That's so cool. I'm using technology to assist me because... Yeah, we've got the projector, but the, the big light was in the way. Big light is no more. I prefer the uplighters and the, the, the light that it casts anyway. The other one is, um, I have a cat. Many people have pets. It's fairly common. Um, but if I walk into the kitchen, or the cat walks into the kitchen, I've got a Zigbee motion sensor above the door, which turns on an LED strip underneath the kitchen cupboards. Oh, very handy. Which subtly lights the kitchen.
0: Just enough for so a midnight snack or cat visibility.
1: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I can cook. I, I can cook with the lights that's there. The other side of the kitchen is just about lit, but you're not uh, falling over things in the middle of the night or something. You walk in, the light comes on. It's not too bright. It's not too dark. The cat walks in and can see what he's eating. That would be it's helpful. have to be in the dark eating his food. That's handy, and so I we'll walk into the room, and if I walk out again our motion isn't detected for a minute, the light goes out again. That's really
0: cool. Now, you're using Home Assistant to do all of this, is that right? So this is on a local... So,
1: yeah, this is all connected to Home Assistant, and most of the, the Zigbee devices, like the door sensor and, and the motion sensors, are Sonoff, a Chinese company called Sonoff, which have their own solution for smart things um sort of mm. hub and, and stuff. But um a great bit of technology is um a project called Task Motor, which allows me to basically get rid of any firmware that Sonoff has on the devices that have firmware. Uh e.g. the Wi Fi plugs, which I don't use, but I've I've flashed a Wi Fi plug for my old boss okay. for him to use. Um that, that's another story. That was quite a cool uh, experiment. But So all of those Zigbee devices connect to a Sonoff Zigbee Hub, oh. which is just a USB-powered Wi-Fi device uh, that I've flashed the task motor firmware onto, and that connects to my Home Assistant server, which I've got to say is the best Linux-based thing I've ever used because it is like a real... Product that you could pay money for. It's very slick.
0: It's impressive. I I haven't used it, but I've seen people use it. So I, because I'm in the in you know all of my devices, you know my Mac, everything are Apple. I'm in the HomeKit ecosystem. Um, but what's nice is um, I do have a Philips Hue hub um, because uh, apart from I'd say I've got a mix, but most of my lighting is Hue of some description. And what's nice is, of course, that Hue hub is a Zigbee hub as well. And I think that you can, t- in fact, <clears throat> I know that those Osram Zigbee bulbs, at least, when they connect to the Philips hub for the Zigbee, they then are passed through into HomeKit. So Philips used to restrict it to their own products. They changed that, um, which is really good. But similarly, sort of as you were saying, because that's contained within your LAN, you don't have to worry about the remote access. You can set up remote access. I assume you do this if you want remote access. Set up a remote access to Home Assistant, and you're not using some, you know, Chinese manufacturer's cloud cloud solution or Amazon solution where you've got potential. I'm being really careful. I say this because I don't want to accuse any company of you know privacy violations. But we know there are issues with these things. We know the amount of data that we're harvesting is not ideal. Um, if nothing else, it becomes complicated. You then need, you know, different apps for different systems. You need different credentials. So, you know, sticking with one system, be that HomeKit, be it Home Assistant. Um, and I know, I think you can tie HomeKit into Home Assistant through. I'm guessing probably through. Can you do that? Is it Hoobs?
1: Um, so Homebridge is it, is it I'm thinking. Well, yeah, I think it's called Homebridge. I I switched back to iOS late last year, and I just thought, hmm, I wonder if HomeKit works with that. So I just logged into the Home Assistant, went onto the plugin store thing, and installed this thing called Homebridge, or whatever it was. Yes, it is Homebridge, and yeah. then it asks you if you want to. I think there's two ways of doing it. Either uh, add devices fully into HomeKit and have HomeKit control it all. Uh, sorry. I think I think you can either have it so that HomeKit controls it all, and you can do everything in that, or you can just sort of bridge it over so that the devices are visible in HomeKit, and you can do stuff. But it won't interrupt any of your automations or anything in, in Home Assistant. So, um, all all that allows me to do is shout at Siri to turn the lights off when I put the projector on instead of yeah. walking over to. I've got this uh, ten-inch. Philips, um, it's it's a digital signage display, a touchscreen one. Okay, I got off eBay for like thirty quid, uh, which is wall mounted, and just runs Home Assistant in the browser. Oh,
0: nice. So you've got like a so panel. I get the
1: full dashboard of Home Assistant. I can check the temperature, at the time, the weather inside and outside. Um, I can control the lighting. I can control the colour of the LED strip in the kitchen if I wanted. Nice which I, I just have it set to white. Yeah. But I could do that. You can have all your other things. You know, some people have got uh, solar panels that they've tapped that into Home Assistant to show uh, all of the their energy usage, how much solar uh, they're generating throughout a given day. You get graphs of information based on temperature. and um, It's really nice. I don't have remote access set up on it. It's literally just within the LAN. Uh, I do want to expand it by getting some cameras, but again, it's like you said before, every manufacturer's got their own solution Mm. for it, their own app. You know, the LED strip in my kitchen is a Zigbee one, but they wanted you to use their app. You know, TP-Link have got their app for their stuff. Their stuff is, from what I've seen, all Wi-Fi stuff. I don't want loads of Wi-Fi devices... If it's got Wi-Fi, that means it's got some kind of more intelligent firmware or microcontroller, but also by default it has access to the internet and other devices on the local area network. And there's no need for my light, my LED bulb in the living room... To have internet access. No. To have internet access. There's just no need.
0: And, you know, it's something again teasing future episodes most of us you know most home users don't have sophisticated routers where we can do vlans and put all our iot stuff onto dedicated vlans you know my vodafone router certainly does have it and and, and while you can absolutely go out and use a cheap cheap old pc for a pf sense box it's probably beyond most people and let's be honest they're not
1: energy efficient. Some of them are, especially past uh, sort of sixth gen Core i series. Um, you know, you might get um, very low usage. Them being just bog standard old office machines, they'll have eighty plus, um, eighty plus gold or above power supplies. But the power supplies are only rated for maybe 120, 150 watts. Oh, okay, because the the CPUs may be, you know top uh, uh, 65 watts, but the graphics are built in these days. That's true. We're running solid-state storage. Each component uses less power, and even one of those machines that idle will probably use less than 25, 30 watts. Okay, so now that's an interesting one, because
0: of course Home, Home Assistant runs on a Linux, Linux machine.
1: Home Assistant is easy in that you can... It's, re- it's a really nice project. You can just put it on an SD card and slap it into a pie, oh. and you're done, right? You can run it as a virtual machine. I think you can run it as a Docker container. Nice. They are they have also created their own hardware, and I don't know if it's shipping yet, but you could buy a Home Assistant box, an actual thing oh. that does exactly what it does. And like I said, it's it's the best Linux thing I've ever used. I've never had any issues with it and it's easy to work around and well documented Mm. Um, going in there and you can do coding stuff. Sometimes you have to for newer devices that aren't very well supported yet but it's really an awesome project because of how surprisingly polished it is but it's, it's very easy to use and stuff like the light's not working. I can't have it not working. And I feel totally confident because a home assistant works.
0: I do like that. I mean, literally had an example of frustration. Now, this wouldn't have been a problem. Well, the reason this was a problem is, so my parents, um, I was up there this weekend, on Sunday morning, their Virgin Media connection died and didn't surprise, not at all surprising, Honestly, I, I'm gonna. I don't mind saying this on my podcast. I cannot recommend Virgin Media or O2 to anyone. The customer service is shocking, <laughs> and d- there's a, there's so many problems with Virgin Media. Um, the I'm not gonna get there, but I cannot recommend them at all.
1: But the connection, and, and I will say, in my experience, in my area, it's not very good. And engineers have told me in person. Uh, the town is oversubscribed. You know, unreliability. If they've oversubscribed, then the, there we go. That's it. That's you know, it. it could happen to anyone. It could
0: no? And it this affected? This wasn't just my parents' street. This was a huge part of the town they live in. Um, but th- the point is, obviously, that connectivity went off. So you have you would have been fine because home assistant. Well, so here's the thing. Actually, maybe you wouldn't have been because if your internet connection's offline, you then have to fall back to four G to order mobile data for internet access unless you're very fancy and you've got one of these fallback thing you've got like a fallback one on your router um i don't i'm more specific my parents don't so we obviously turned off our wi-fi which means we lost connectivity to in this case we lost connectivity to the home pod which act uh, acted as the home kit hub for the house which meant that obviously, first of all, Siri wouldn't work because certainly not on the HomePod because on the HomePod it doesn't do local requests for some reason. So they couldn't turn anything on and off with that. We could do it on the actual devices through Home App because it was still, if we were catching Wi-Fi, but of course we'd all turned our Wi-Fi off. So I had to keep turning my Wi-Fi back on and off to go and turn on lamps and stuff. And before anyone says yes, we could have done it manually with the, the switches... So yes, but it is a point of frustration. Whereas, I guess uh, same thing would happen to you. I suppose if you'd had to disconnect from your Wi-Fi network for some reason, you wouldn't have been. Yeah,
1: you wouldn't be able to get it to a Home Assistant either. So um, no, it, it's hardwired and it runs on its own display. So I have a, oh. a physical interface oh, to it. So you would have been fine. You know, yeah. the ser- the power would have to be off. Yeah. My server would have to that be off sense. for it to not work. Or if the Power's off, then I can't turn the light on. No, it? there's that fa-
0: there's that wonderful, famous IT support story. <laughs> it always makes me smile. Uh, someone calls in and says, I'm, my computer's not turning on. Oh, okay. Um, let's see what we can do. Is the light on? I-, I can't really see, to be honest with you. I'm like, okay. Can you go on my back and just see if a power socket's plugged in? No, I can't see. And, I, and They say, why can't you see? He says, oh, um, there's no lights on. He said, well, turn the light. He says, we can't. We've had a power cut. <laughs> so, I will say though on the subject of smart home one thing that I'm really excited about and really think is simplifying connectivity is thread or what's going to become matter um, so uh, Eve and Nanoleaf are big supporters of this and I have Nanoleaf's essential bulbs which are thread they don't need a Wi-Fi connection they the home pod mini is a thread hub Really nice, and I think some of TP-Link's deco stuff is as well. I might no, so the M9 Plus, the TP-Link Deco M9 Plus is a Zigbee hub. Um, not many people know that. but yeah, some of the TP-Link's um, deco stuff is, has a Zigbee radio. Um, but the idea is that you then don't—they don't necessarily need an internet connection. And the, the firmware updates, they—I think they go through the HomePod. But one of the really cool things, if you've got apples, um, if you've got routers that support our HomeKit routers, you can actually say what devices on your network get what connectivity, which is kind of like VLANs, but for, well, for normal folk. Um, And I really like that. I mean,
1: I'd counter that by saying, yeah, but Zigbee, you know, doesn't need internet anyway, so... Why why overcomplicate it? You do it doesn't need to be connected to the internet. No, that's true. You do um, need a hub though for Zigbee. Yeah. Which just needs power That's true. Just needs power and
0: network, and yeah, that's true.
1: Me router to be on for the Wi Fi. That's true.
0: I my the the yeah. Philips um one is Ethernet based, so that's really nice. Anyway, so that's how that's probably you know that's that's smart home stuff. I, I'd love to hear in the comments on on the podcast post. What smart home stuff do you guys have? What 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 have you found frustrating? Please share your horror stories or your or your success stories. And if you've got like an awesome setup that you want to brag about, by all means, leave a comment in the um, in the podcast post on the site Crosswires.net. dot net. You can find all our podcast episodes there, and we've got comments turned on for all of them. Thank you, Substack, by the way, for actually allowing us to have a blog and a podcast completely hosted for free. It's so cool. Uh, And embedding discussions. um, So when you go to the site, it will prompt you to subscribe, but you know what? You you don't have to. You can say, no, I just want to read. Um, But the subscription is an email subscription, so you can get all of our latest episodes and blog posts and YouTube videos right to your email inbox. I think we've both had our share of fun and games with Smart Home. I will say your setup sounds more, what's the word, more resilient than, than the ones I've gone for. I'm very much reliant on HomeKit. So if something went wrong with HomeKit, I would I would struggle. But I, I really need to look into Home Assistant. So thank you for that. We'll put, obviously, a link to Home Assistant in the show notes. So our final complication a final annoyance, or I mean, I say annoyance, but there's a reason I get annoyed with this, and it's passwords and authentication. Now, I am a huge fan of One Password. One Password has simplified the management of my passwords and all of my other little bits of security information so much. I, I just honestly, I pay for a family subscription, and it is worth every single penny because it's simplified my parents' password management as well. But what it also means is that if, for example, I need to share an account with them, Netflix. um, (laughs) So anyone anyone listening from Netflix, um, I absolutely did not just share my password with my parents. Uh, But
1: well, your family are.
0: Yeah, we just don't live in the same household. But I'll say this: if you want people to stop sharing passwords, Netflix, stop charging so flipping much.
1: True barrier to
0: entry. It really is. Like, okay, this wasn't meant to be a rant about Netflix, but you look at um, Disney Plus, you look at Apple TV Plus, and Amazon Prime Video.
1: Even if you're. Two of which didn't exist five years ago.
0: This is true. Their prices are much more favorable. They don't seem to care about you sharing passwords. They really don't. Um, in fact, Amazon actually make it so you can have a second actual account linked to your prime membership like another amazon account so i do that for my for my mom apple tv plus is actually quite a a really nice way of doing it because that ties into the whole icloud family sharing thing which yes apple say it should be within your household but they don't stop you and instead of you having to share your apple tv password you just get add their icloud id into your family plan it's much simpler but but going back to the point, managing passwords. You know, one passwords family plan. It means that, for example, things we share, like for example, because I am tech support for my parents, my dad has put our the Virgin Media online sort of management login, you know, for the billing and stuff, into our family vault. So that if I need to get in and check something. Like, for example, if they've been overcharged or when it comes to renewal time, I can say, okay, this is what we've been paying, this is what I'm going to negotiate, or if there's any faults, anything like that, I can deal with it. I mean, lots of different examples. Because back when we, particularly when we started off with computers and you, usernames and passwords were a lot simpler. We didn't have the same complexity requirements. You're obviously a systems admin, so you have to deal with a lot of making sure your customers and your users are, are using decent passwords and decent two-fact authentication. Do you think password and authentication has become more complicated? And maybe but the phrase I always use is maybe more user hostile.
1: Yeah, and it kind of by nature needs to, well, you can't just have a password that is cow. No. <laughs> it's easy to guess. It couldn't have one word. You don't want something that's easy to guess. So you start with that and you come up with something that's harder to guess but you still get people trying to brute force the account. What well, harder to guess sometimes waits well, too harder to remember. Mm-hmm. And people don't like remembering stuff or technology, it seems. Then we've got multi-factor authentication on top, which, because people are guessing passwords, because people are brute forcing passwords, um, it's, it's a necessity. Yeah. What I, from what I see, multi-factor isn't. It depends how it's implemented. Really good point. What really winds me up is when multi-factor sends you an email, <laughs> jeez, and you have to wait for the yeah. email to come through. For example, um, Steam does this. Or yeah, yeah. You can set it to otherwise. You can set it to something else. But okay, is a normal person gonna go right? I 100% know what multi-factor authentication is, and I'm definitely going to go into settings of my account on Steam mm-hmm. or wherever it is, and I'm definitely going to change that to Authenticator app. I'm definitely going to go in and set up an Authenticator app, which is whatever it is, and then that database of authentication keys is stored on your mm-hmm. phone, or are you going to pay for uh, LastPass or 1Password? And it's We have these services to, I guess, make it easier but these services exist because it's hard.
0: Yeah. No, it's a really good... I mean, look, you know, I going back over, you know, again, not to pimp too much for 1Password, but going back over how it was created, it was created because the founders, Dave Tier and Rustam Karamov, wanted to scratch their own itch. And actually, to be fair, that that tends to be my favourite software, software that's created to scratch the developer's itch and is then made public. But... It was because it was hard and because we needed, you know... Because in an ideal world, every single password for every single system that you use where single sign-on isn't involved, put that caveat on there. I like single sign-on. I think it's a great thing. Um, But it's a pain to set up. But ideally, every password for every site should be unique and should be, you know, secure. So it shouldn't be something that anyone else can guess. It should have a certain complexity... Now, complexity incidentally does not always translate to length. You could have a really long password that's full of dictionary words. Now, dictionary words meaning these are in a bun are in what well, the dictionary, but also what we call password dictionaries that these attackers will use to try and brute force your passwords. You know, so there's a you know there's a list of common passwords, but there's all these dictionaries as well. So you want complexity, but complexity doesn't mean long. It means, so for example using special characters one thing i do want to sort of really highlight if you need a password that's memorable so for example your windows login if you're not using windows hello but if you need a password that's memorable don't forget that a space is a special character use a phrase you know there's that old xk, XK joke correct horse battery staple if you put spaces in between that you increase the the complexity, or what I think in a technical term, I might be wrong on miss, is called entropy. So the entropy of your password is it basically contributes to how long it would take modern modern brute forcing attacks to be able to guess that password and crack it. So the more complexity you put in, the, the longer that's going to take. And um, there are oh there are sites that will tell you, but be very careful because the last thing you want to do is fall into a scam site and enter your password <laughs> to see how strong it is. And then that end up, yeah, um, there are good sites that you can use. And um, services like 1Password, and I think LastPass do this, and I know Bitvorden do as well, will use tools. They'll use the Have I Been Pwned site to offline see if your passwords are weak. But I think you hit the nail on the head with implementation. Because I need to double-check this, but I think Steam only allows you to use their Steam Authenticator. I don't think it allows you to use like Google Authenticator or you know like the, uh, being able to because One Password has a feature where you can scan a QR code into One Password to have them just generated from there, which I I like. Um, but a lot of tools will only allow their proprietary multi-factor. Um, one that drives me party, which I really wish they would allow something better, is the Universal Credit site. You know, I'm unemployed at the moment, so I am claiming Universal Credit. You have, to, you, you have to use text message two-factor. And the only period that you can trust a particular browser session for, browser for is seven days. But why can't I just set up Google Authenticator again, 1Password with this? Why, why are you forcing me to use text message when we know that there's potential? I, I think this is more so in, in the US than here. But you know, it's, in the US, it seems it's shockingly easy to take over someone's cell phone number. But, you know, if you can get access to someone's SIM card, you potentially have the keys to their two-factor for a lot of services. And it's quite scary.
1: Yeah, you've got to bear in mind the chance of that happening. True. It is slim. There's risk. What is the risk? The risk is that someone could call your provider and have done a bit of social engineering and got your name and address and blah, blah, blah. And you don't necessarily need your, what's your unique password or whatever when you phone up because um, i will ask you something yeah. else what well, was the amount on your last bill well I already know their email address so I guess their email password and they don't have two factors set up on that, they'll find a way yeah. through social engineering to, to to get that information uh, and
0: that's an interesting one and it's again maybe a piece of advice this wasn't meant to be a security you know, sort of discussion but it is a really valid piece of advice, be careful what you post on social media You know, those questions, I mean, I'm not on Facebook for, I I just can't stand Facebook, sorry. But those quizzes, like, what is it? Um, Tell, you know, the the last thing you, your pet's name, your, the street you grew up on, all this stuff, and this will give you your rapper name. No, what that's doing is effectively giving them all of your security question answers. But guess what? I mean, here's, here's one that I always have fun with. I never set my security answers to anything that are actually genuine. I generate all my security questions in 1Password. Causes absolute chaos when I'm on my phone with, like, a provider. What's your mother's maiden name? Uh, ZXRG6... What?
1: (laughs) Is that a motorbike?
0: (laughs) (laughs) What was your last motorbike? Um, You work in IT and corporate two-factor... I will say I am quite a fan of Microsoft Authenticator and how they've done some of their
1: stuff. It's so... Yeah, it's, it's quite good. Um, from my point of view, with Azure AD is a really yes. good tool um, in that you can set and force multi-factor. Um, you can also see a lot of where your login attempts Mm. are coming from and a lot of detail to do with that included in um, a lot of the Microsoft 365 business plans which a lot of businesses these days do have Um, you have things like conditional access you have stuff where you can as part of conditional access limits where accounts can be logged into from so if you don't want that account logging in from somewhere that is France or you know Spain or wherever it might be, and you know that person definitely isn't going to be there. Uh, you can limit that based on the number of factors. Well, yeah, if you've
0: got Bob, if you've got and Bob in the office down the hall from you, and all of a sudden and you know he's there because you've just spoken to him, and all of a sudden you've got logging attempts into Bob's account coming from Paris or Nigeria you know you've potentially got... Either Bob's gone on a very quick vacation, or... Did I just say vacation? I'm, I'm pandering to... I'm, I'm sorry. Bob's gone on holiday. Bob's Bob's packed up. Holiday.
1: Bob's, for Bob, holiday. Bob's been
0: down to Lumpoli. The point is, <laughs> you know that that something's going on with Bob's account. It's wonderful to have that sort of uh, that analysis. One thing that frustrates me is when you see... Banks and and other services trying to be too clever with security security measures that aren't really security measures. The one that's always driven me potty, and uh, because uh, particularly particularly someone who uses a password manager, it, it's not it, it's gotten easier. But <clears throat> Barclays, please tell us the fourth fifth and 24th character of your password. no. (laughs) No. So there's an interesting one here because, okay, I understand why they've done that. They think it means people will choose more complicated passwords or rather, no, I don't know what they think, but there's a, there's a harsh reality in now. Certainly when I looked into this last, which I admit was a long time ago, so I'm happy to be fact-checked on this, for them to be able to do that sort of fifth, sixth, seventh, you know, random character, they need to have an unencrypted copy of your password to be able to compare it against. So what does that mean? Well, that means potentially that your password is not stored in a secure way, which means if they have a data breach, I buy your password. Which is why you should be using unique passwords. But it doesn't, if you, instead of doing that, educate your customers on, you know, look, whether or not you use 1Password, whether or not you prefer LastPass, whether or not you prefer BitVorden, You know, I don't care what password manager you use, educate your customers on using password managers. Educate them on good password habits. And, and HSBC, I'm calling out you know, banks here. HSBC use the, I'm really <laughs> slamming into the banks. HSBC use those horrible little um, token things, in you know, like the little pin pad.
1: I quite like them. They're like low tech, True. but
0: it is two two-factor. That's a good. Do you know what? You're right. It is. It is a hard, it's hard a hardware token, was, which is actually yeah. better than a
1: a software. But it's a single point of if failure. If that thing breaks you, you lose it. Because you could have an encrypted database of tokens that's backed up mm-hmm. elsewhere and further secured. Or it could be backed up offline. Yeah. And so if the device dies, you just restore your... It could be a paper copy. It could be a disk. It could be non-mechanical in nature, but a backup Now, the
0: Now, the one I did like, and I thought was actually quite reasonable... <laughs> If they'd used it in conjunction with a standard username and password as a second factor, I wouldn't have had a problem. But this is actually Barclays, so they were doing this fifth, sixth, and seventh, and all this. But PIN entry, mm. because PIN entry, because it was a standard, I could take my Barclays PIN entry device and put my card into it and generate the codes I needed. But if my device failed, a I could go to any branch and just grab a new one. B if someone say had a NatWest one. In fact, I tried this um, when I moved accounts. NatWest had the same tech, so I just used the Barclays one because I I think either I kept the Barclays one at home and kept the NatWest one in my bag or something like that, but because it was the same technology, they were interchangeable. That was okay. And, of course, hey, here's a forward-thinking idea. Support uh, um, YubiKeys and, and actual, yeah. um, you know... Hardware keys, um, because you've got the whole U2F and you've got the Web Orphan standard. You've got some really cool new security standards that should make things much easier. But problem is, the adoption is so slow. I want to see it more. You know, if my my ideal would be that all my two factor would be tight, ty- would be able to be like a push notification onto my iPhone that I just Face ID with. Because that's still two-factor in fact it's, it's, but it's
1: easy it's, and biometrics I think if you log into iCloud.com, it does that it asks you it says there's been a login mm-hmm. attempt, it comes up, it tells you roughly where and it, it generates the code. You can allow or not, and then it generates a code, but you have had to have unlocked your phone to see case. that
0: code. Yes, I do like that. And it's right there when when you have done so. It is actually really nice. The only thing that annoys me is if it's an Apple device that you're so if I'm logging into say if I'm logging into iCloud on my Mac, the prompt comes up on my Mac, I would prefer it not to come up on the device I'm using. Mm. I don't know. That's maybe just me. That's maybe just me thinking. But you know, and those newer app you know the Mac with Touch ID, wonderful. And again, as I said, I you know Windows Hello seems like Microsoft actually put some thought into it. There seems to be decent enough security requirements that Windows Hello is viable as a security product. I guess I, I don't have a problem with, with pa- requiring password complexity. I just have a problem with ob- ob- with what people call security theater, so overcomplicating login processes, which could be solved by strong passwords and good two-factor.
1: I, I, I could, you know, 2022. I still don't think there's much wrong with having a book that you write passwords down in that's stored in a house that's secured. Ooh. Okay. I mean. Sorry.
0: Uh, <laughs> do you know what? <laughs> if if it's stored in a secured location.
1: <laughs> I'd, I don't have it personally, through. but I know people that do. I, I Because I use it as a. Do you remember when the brain training on the oh, DS yes. was yeah. all the rave? So, I me remembering passwords is uh, a mental oh, exercise okay. for me. And that's how I, how I look at it. I, I can understand. So I can remember a password from a conversation I had with someone a week ago where I couldn't tell you where I had for tea okay. last night.
0: Gammon and, and egg? Right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm d- bringing out some big <laughs>
0: Norman stereotypes. What did you had for your tea last night, oh, Denise? <laughs> um, <laughs> I should say, we should probably say, of course, we, we joke a lot about northern culture. That's because we are both from the north. Although I live now in the south, I live in Bournemouth. Hey,
1: you know what you said before? You went secure. Did. Instead of secure, you said secure. No. And you didn't call yourself out okay. on it. It's all coming back <sighs> to you. Look, <laughs> mind my, 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 you, know, I, I don't say secure, but I'm more. Closer to Liverpool, so it is secure.
0: I think I've been watching too much. Liverpool. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's it, it accents are a wonderful thing, and I do hope I do oh, yeah, hope our it's... American listeners have been able to understand us. <laughs>
1: well, not that, bad. Not
0: really <laughs> that bad. um So. I think we should probably look to wrap up. Um, what I will say for cultural references, the ones we're talking about, I can highly recommend a couple of shows that you should watch for understanding Northern culture: Phoenix Nights, Dinner Ladies, and the Royal Family.
1: And if you want something more YouTube-based, I like uh, a guy who goes around and does food reviews, and his channel's called Rate My Takeaways. Where he's all like, "Hey up!" But he's he's from Yorkshire. And uh, that that's a good watch if you if you like watching people review different food places. And he just turns up with his table, he gets his chair out, and he goes chair test. And he's a big fella, and he'll sit down on it, and he's like, oh, survived another day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it because you know t- oh takeaways. You know, living down here in Basavtek is so much more expensive. It's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, look, Jack, it's been really fun to talk a little bit of tech complications with you. I think. As we say in pre-show, we're not always going to agree on everything. I I don't advocate for password books, but I understand the reasoning behind it. And, you know, what? we can have that discussion. And I think that's one of the biggest things I really want people to take away from this show is, you know, this is a discussion. Please, you know, use the comments below and talk to us about it. Because, you know, I really want this to be a community. Look, I'm just going to pre-announce something here. I'm working on a Discord server. I want to just make sure it's safe for everyone. So it is going to be over 18s only. And that's purely to just protect everyone. Um, Because in this day and age, you have to be really careful, unfortunately. Um, You know. So, but I want it to be a space where we can chat. You know, look, I think we can both say the RMC Discord, RMC Retro Discord server is is certainly one of my favourite places to hang out. And Neil and the team have just made everyone so welcome. And I don't think I was as involved during the lockdowns as you were, but I know you shared how vital it was during lockdown and, you know, there's so much knowledge sharing. I really want to build that. So not sure when it's going to be, um, but I will announce when it is. So, you know, we'll have a discord server, but discussion is such a, a huge part of IT and such a huge part of technology. I, I, I really advocate. Look, we will all have different opinions on technology, but do you know what? That's what makes us a great community because we can share and learn from each other. As long, look, as long as we treat each other with some sort of basic, decent human respect, there's room for discussion.
1: Opinions and experiences, what, what make us individual? Absolutely. So,
0: speaking of opinions. Um, what rubbish did you buy this week on YouTube? Now, this is your YouTube channel. This is where you... Is, it, is that what rubbish did I buy on YouTube? Is that the... What
1: What crap have you yes. bought now?
0: And, <laughs> yeah, so this is Jack's YouTube channel, and I watched a couple of episodes, and I will say f- memories just came flooding back. I think you got a system with a Zalman flower cooler, and I just had a flashback to trying to install the dang thing into a machine, and honestly... Cutting fingers and yelping in pain from trying to install because they were sharp. I mean, they look sharp, but they were sharp things, you know. So, (laughs) yeah. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Make sure you send me a link to. In fact, I'll find I've got it (laughs) because I'm subscribed.
1: Yeah, if if you like occasional ramblings about some crap that I think's interesting or. Even mundane videos like How to Clean Computer Fans, which you don't see many big YouTubers sort of talk about, and I think you don't have to bin the fan. You can just take it apart and lubricate it, and it's usually back to how it was, and it's little tips like that, things that I find interesting, but also I've got a a few interesting things, like a digital video editing system from the late 90s, um, which, again, is something I found that was very interesting and not very well documented on youtube um so yeah i mean i don't put out all the time but i I do it when i want to i'm not trying to do anything else really with it so yeah uh, check it out if you're into old crap
0: (laughs) (laughs) which which is what i lovingly refer to as, uh, as my dad Oh wait! No, sorry, no, I shouldn't say that. Shouldn't. My dad is a lovely boy. Hey, many of you have seen my dad's hands in in the time capture video. Hey, you know, look, talk. You know, we talk from we. I think the message I really want to come from what I'm doing is that technology doesn't have to be disposable. It can, we can get so much. You know, you know, it's talk about refurbishing fans, looking after your Tech is such an important thing, and you know that. And I think to to sum up this whole episode, that doesn't just involve a physical aspect of tech. I think we just need to be really conscious of how we look after our digital lives. How we look after you know how if we're going to do smart home stuff, we might need to do a bit of extra research, a bit of thinking, planning before just buying the latest five quid Wi-Fi smart plug off Alibaba.
1: And why is it five pound? Why is this Amazon Alexa device? claims to give me all of these benefits only 20 pounds well maybe it's because they're taking your data and doing something with it to benefit them absolutely if you're not paying for a product you are the product just remember that folks
0: look you know there are lots of great video doorbells that are not ring that are secure there are lots of great security cameras that are not internet connected there's lots of rubbish ones as well but there are good. There are some good. I remember in a previous role, one of our director's dads had given him his security camera system for us, and the cameras were HD, but it was over like um like a BNC connector. They were not network yeah. cameras, and the DVR was. Chinese. It had the worst instructions. It had a horrible interface. And the only way you could access the web interface, you'll love this. So bear <laughs> man this was in twenty nineteen. Was in Internet Explorer six with ActiveX. <laughs> yep. Yep. And just for context, we were running Windows ten at this point in the business. So yeah, that that went back and um we actually did um Unify in the end um so yeah anyway jack it's been a pleasure are you on social medias so that people can find you as as it's an arse or
1: um not that you do to see really just just the youtube channel that's on. I, topic. Think, I I'm, I'm <laughs> my other hobby is
0: cars <laughs> there's nothing about cars and technology just tell me you haven't put a zx spectrum into it into like a glove box or something
1: no, but we, me and the mate joked about putting a PS2 in a car. No, nothing wrong all with skill that at
0: all. Um, By yeah. the way, I do want to just, um, before we wrap up because I realise time is, this is going to be a long episode, sorry about that folks. The PS1 you referred to is not the PlayStation original PlayStation. It's the lovely little mini compact PS1 P-S-O-N-E that I, I just loved that machine. I nearly got one. But my mum my mum wouldn't let me and my sister buy it. We're going to buy it on our own money as well, but she wouldn't let us buy it. She, she didn't want us to have one. So, yeah. Anyway, Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: So, thank you all for listening. Um, please do check out CrossWires.net for all the latest blog posts and podcast episodes. CrossWires.net forward slash YouTube for the YouTube channel. I do have a new video that's kind of in the works. And, of course, make sure you follow us on Twitter at CrossWiresMG. You can drop an email to podcast at crosswires.net. And, of course, as I said, make sure you leave a comment on this post and do like and subscribe. See you next time.